0: Starting in Acts 3, where, where we are, just a quick um, piggyback off of last week, Pentecost is over. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The lives of the people at Pentecost and in the early church um, are changed. 3,000 people have gotten saved. The church is walking around with a sense of expectation and excitement now that the Spirit has filled the people. And as you'll see as we go through the rest of this book, from that moment on Pentecost... There is zero sense that the church is lacking in any way without Jesus being with them. And that's really important. Because until this point, you've got, like when Jesus um, was, was crucified, he rose from the dead, you've still you've got Peter. What is he doing? He's, he's going back and he's fishing. There's this sense of loss, this sense of letdown. I let my king down because I, I just wasn't the man that he thought I was, and so I'm just going to turn back to my old life. And there's the story of Jesus coming to Peter and making him say, do you love me three different times? But from that point of resurrection to up to the point of Pentecost, there's this sense in the church, and especially with the disciples, that like, they're still not quite getting it. Even the moment Jesus is about to ascend, they're asking questions, when is the kingdom gonna be reestablished? When will Israel have its worldwide power once again? They still didn't quite get it. But from the point that the Holy Spirit is poured out, that God himself fills his people, that sense, that notion is completely gone. There is absolutely no hindrance or lacking in the life and the vibrancy of the church with Jesus not being with them. And the reason why is because the Holy Spirit in them was a greater advantage than Jesus being with them. And that's important. The reason why it's important is because we can be convinced today that man, life would be so much easier. I wouldn't struggle with faith if, like, if I just like, saw Jesus. Like, if, he, if I could just like, walk with Him and talk with Him. No. We've got lots of accounts of people who did exactly that, and there was not the transformational power that took place that there was after the Spirit. Literally, God filled His people. He gave Himself by pouring into them. And so, like, we can say, well, if we just had it a little bit like this. No, no, there are people who had it like that, and they still didn't get it. In fact, um, Jesus promises in John 14, 6 that the Holy Spirit, when He is poured out, when He fills believers, that He's going to be a helper. A helper in a way that Jesus couldn't be the helper because now He is filling every one of the believers. He says in uh, John 16, 7 that um, I need to leave so that the Spirit can come. The Spirit actually coming will be a greater advantage than Jesus staying. That is, Jesus with his own mouth saying, I have to leave so that you can have a greater advantage by the Spirit filling you. And so there's this sense as we enter into Acts 3 that the church is alive, it's on fire, it's spreading, things are They're going wild. People are sharing. People are studying. They're submitting. The Spirit is working. The Spirit is filling His people. But when we get into Acts chapter 3, we start seeing that it's not all mass salvations and power and demonstrations of glory. We start to see the disciples taste persecution for the first time. But what Luke wants us to understand is that the the same Holy Spirit who was our advantage over having Jesus with us, being filled with the Spirit of God, that advantage is not just an advantage so that we can be filled and there be demonstrations of power and, 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 and mass salvations. There's also another benefit to being filled with the Spirit. And that is that we have someone with us through suffering and tribulations. The Spirit that was poured out on Pentecost was manifested with these great signs and wonders in the kingdom of God. It's like it just exploded on the scene. And we can get convinced that like, oh, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit's not moving unless there's these big, massive demonstrations of Him moving. And that's just simply not the case. And Luke makes that argument in 3 and 4 today. Because what we're about to see is that the Spirit that empowers and equips every single believer is not just for these miraculous signs and wonders, it also is for boldness in the face of persecution and in confrontations that you would struggle with with fear and anxiety. The Holy Spirit fills you so that you don't have to be afraid anymore. All right, now, why is this so important? Watch the news. (laughs) Fear and anxiety are being used as a weapon in the hands of the enemy to limit the work of God. And it's a powerful weapon. It's one of the reasons why the command that's mentioned most often in the Bible is do not fear because it is one of the most powerful weapons that the enemy has in his arsenal. If he can get you to stand back and not act because you're afraid, that's all that has to. He doesn't need you to bow down and worship Satan. He just needs you to be afraid enough to not act on what God has asked you to act on. He just wants you to be so afraid that you don't obey. That's the key. It's the end game. And so today, as we're reading through this, I want you to really grasp the idea that what Luke is communicating to us is that the Spirit of God is with us in every circumstance. We're never alone. And yes, it manifests itself in in marvelous signs and wonders. People getting healed, like like, um, manifestations of of, of powerful uh, demonstrations of faith being able to pray for long periods of time. We, we, we see the Spirit empowering and equipping the church to do this, but that's not all there is. The Spirit is also empowering and equipping us so that we don't have to live in fear and anxiety anymore because the Holy Spirit empowers and equips us so that we can be bold. Yes. So that you don't have to worry about what words are going to come out of your mouth when you're called into question, when you have to stand before rulers. Rulers courts who are accusing you of of going away from the status quo because you're following what our father told us to follow. You don't have to be afraid because the Spirit fills you and equips you and empowers you for that purpose. Ready? Let's get into it. Acts chapter three, let's start in verse one. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that is about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and a lame man from birth was being carried. So, he was uh, crippled, he could not uh, walk. And his friends, family, they laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, just before we get in, I want to paint a little bit of a picture to you. The temple we're imagining here is the second temple. This isn't Solomon's temple that was destroyed when the Babylonians came in. When the Persians released Israel to return, they rebuilt their temple. And people that remembered the original temple weren't really happy with it, because it's not as pretty as it used to be. And so, through... Uh, that 500-year that period between when they started rebuilding and when Jesus shows up, uh, people had come in and remodeled. One of the greatest of those was King Herod. He had come in and poured a lot of money in remodeling this thing to make the temple really, really nice. It was a it was a pride thing for him, but the, at this point, the temple was gorgeous. And if you can imagine this, like this massive kind of city with a wall around it, and then right off, not just in the middle, but also kind of like off to the back side of it, you've got this huge rectangular plot of land that is just built up. Um, Massive, like, it, like the walls are as tall as the walls in this room. And then on the top of it is this huge flat area. There's this open area where these open courts are one side of it is called Solomon's portico or its porch, and it's just a huge open area where people would gather and teach and, and share and, and, and kind of hand together. Uh, and, and then right there in the middle towards the back of it is the temple, and the temple is this huge rectangular structure, and it's massive. It's, you know, 90 feet high. It's got these huge pillars. It's just gorgeous pieces of furniture inside and you walk in and the first room that you walk into is the holy place and there's pieces of furniture overlaid with gold and this is where they would do all the worship and there's this massive um, veil that would hung, that, that hung there uh, was hanged there and on the other side of it was uh, this uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And depending on who you ask, did the Ark of the Covenant, was was it actually there? Did it actually return from Babylon? Maybe it was in there, maybe it wasn't. But at this point, the veil had been ripped in half from top to bottom after Jesus died on the cross. And so the temple is there, the structure is there, people are continuing worship, but things are a little bit weird because Jesus did this stuff and now everything's like, I don't know. And so you see Peter and John and they're still observing some of the customs and not really sure if we should be going. We're gonna go to prayer every more, but like, the, we don't need to like do the sacrifice thing because Jesus was the one who sacrificed for all. And so there's this in-between period where I'm not really sure what we're supposed to be doing, but we're going to kind of observe this. We're looking at Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that is ultimately Jewish. But then, then we're going to start seeing Gentiles getting saved, and then there's this kind of question. But where we are in this period, they're walking up into this temple, and they're going through this gate that is just overlaid with gold and silver, and it's called the beautiful gate. It's gorgeous. And there's this guy laying there, and he's crippled, and he's begging for money. Okay? So that's the scene set. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And so he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. That's interesting, this is a side note. I told you two weeks ago that Luke, that wrote this as a physician, and the language he's using here is, is like um, very specific Greek. As a matter of fact, when he talks about his feet and his ankles were made strong, the Greek words that he's using there, they're not found anywhere else in the New Testament because it's very, um, like, it's like a doctor uh, writing his notes. The, the Greek translation here would be, um, as soon as he grabbed him and pulled him up, his uh, feet and his ankles snapped into socket. That's what he's communicating here. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him. Isn't that the guy who can't walk? Is the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now let's, let's pause right there. Now Peter and John are walking up to observe prayer. And a person in need Asks for help. Okay? So you've got Peter and John disciples. You've got this guy and he says, I need help. Now help from the lame man's perspective looked like pocket change. The person in need is defining help. I need help. And help is your pocket change. Peter and John, filled with the Spirit, they've been filled with the Spirit numerous times, They look down from God's perspective and they realize that that's not actually going to help him. Help looks like something completely different. Help doesn't look like pocket change. Help looks like a completely healed body. And so when you're reading this story, the illustration leaps out at how different we can define help. And so, and I think about this often in ministry. Imagine a person let's say somebody in crisis is convinced that they need help. And they they come to you um, and they say, "I, I need help. And this, specifically, is what help looks like. Well, that may be the case. That may be exactly what help looks like. But it might not be what help looks like. It might just be the crisis talking or it might not be the crisis talking, it might just be a want talking. Imagine someone who's just gripped with alcohol addiction and their body is going through withdrawals and they say, I need help. Help is enough money to get another drink so I stop feeling like this. Well, well, that's not help. That's, that's your crisis talking. That's actually a want. That's not a, that's not an, a need. That you're not, that's not going to help you. now if if that's the case and I, I would argue that we could all agree that it is that that when someone defines someone in need defines what help is it could actually be help but it might not necessarily be help you've got this one thing people saying i need help It may actually be helpful or not. And then you've got this other command, and we'll just group all of the commands in the New Testament where Jesus is teaching on serving and loving our neighbor and helping the widow and the orphan, the good Samaritan. There seems to be an expectation on us as believers to help. And there is no um, shortage of people in the world who are saying, I need help. How can we as a community of believers know when we've been commanded to help to actually give the help that is needed. How did Peter know that healing would be the help that this guy needed? Should we just rely on what society tells us help is? Should we allow the person who's in need always to define? Well, they're the one in need. They should know better than anybody else, except for the fact that sin likes to talk for us. Crisis. Addiction likes to talk for us. So even though you may identify this as a need, maybe it's not actually what you need. Maybe it would just be something that would continue the issue that you're in right now. Maybe you need something completely different than that. What I'm introducing to you is attention. That we have been commanded as a people of God to obey and to help through obedience, to help and to serve. But you've also got the other side of it, is people saying, yes, help me in this way, serve me in this way. But the help and servant is not always going to be helpful. How do we know how we can actually help? Do you feel that tension when you're when you're sitting at a stoplight and someone's sitting on the side of the road holding a sign? Ah, I want to help, but what is, like what does help look like? How do I know that what I'm doing is actually helpful? Do you feel the tension? This is going to continue to build because now we're a people of of faith who who we should be ministering and spreading the kingdom of God, which is a tremendous help. He helped us up out of sin. How do we we model that in a way that's not just helping sin continue? You starting to feel the stress of this? So what's the answer? How are we supposed to know what's helpful? How did Peter know what was helpful? Well, I think this is just my personal opinion, I don't think Peter knew what was actually helpful. I don't think Peter knew that healing was exactly what he needed, and I don't think that we can ever really know what help looks like. What we need is someone who has a third perspective communicating to us what is actually helpful. We need God speaking to us about what is actually helpful. And so I would argue that Peter in this moment didn't instinctively know that this guy needs to be healed. I would argue that he has been filled with the Spirit enough times that when this ask came across his, his view, he, the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, no, no, alms is not what this guy needs. And you don't even have that anyway. What I want to do is something profoundly more impactful because I've got something beyond this. Because what's about to happen here is everyone starts noticing, eventually Peter preaches and 5,000 people get saved. And here's what's wild about this. We're gonna find out later in the story that this guy was 40 years old and he's been sitting at this gate for a really long time. And this event takes place just a few weeks after Jesus ascended from up to heaven. So the strong, there's a strong argument to be made that this guy was sitting at this gate while Jesus was walking and around Jerusalem and doing his ministry. Why didn't Jesus heal this guy? Because God knew that this was not this guy's time to be healed. His time to be healed would be at the, at the spirit moving through Peter later because that's when the crowds would catch notice And that's when they would hear the gospel preached and that's when they would repent. So why did the guy get healed? Because it led to people hearing the gospel preached. Which should in some way satisfy our curiosity for God, do you always heal? Do you have a desire to always heal? Well, ultimately, yes, he has a desire to heal us. That's why he will resurrect our bodies one day and you will ultimately be healed. It may not necessarily be in your time frame, but we are all promised that one day we will all experience a resurrected new body and a new heaven and a new earth and there won't be sickness anymore and you will be healed. There are shadows, whispers of that as we lead forward, but always those shadows and those whispers serve the greater purpose of God's glory. Not just because we can say some magic words and manipulate our king to do what we want him to do. That's not a king, that's you being king. What we're looking at here is God seeing the big picture, all of the moving parts, and prompting Peter, speaking, to Peter, Peter, I want you to pray for this guy to be healed. And what's wild is that this doesn't seem like Peter. As we start reading this, it's like the way he's talking, this sounds more like Jesus than Peter. And as you you start reading through the rest of this, when he starts getting confronted by the Pharisees, like that doesn't sound like Peter at all. And so, What I'm arguing for, and I think what Luke is arguing for, is that there is a way of living your life and walking by faith that doesn't require you needing to know the answers to all of how everything works out. If I do this, if I give this guy this money, if I help this person out, is it really good? Not necessary. The only thing that is required of the vessels is to deliver the presence. So what is on our plate? Obey Him. What does God say? So, and this is tough, because what this is gonna require is a lot more praying on our part, a lot more listening on our part, which is hard because what we like doing is problem solving. We like sketching things out and putting things in the pro and the, and the con column. Is this, is this beneficial? Is there more things? But, That's not what's being presented here. What's being presented here is the spirit of God, God himself filling his people and and moving and ministering and equipping and empowering and, and doing the work through us, which requires us to listen to the king and do what he says. And sometimes that's counter to what you think would be most productive, but he says, go here, give here, speak this, pray for her. And every time we obey, God works through us in miraculous ways. All right, now go to verse 11. So when he clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded. They ran together to him in the portico called Solomon's. That's the porch I was just describing to you. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Who is... This isn't Peter. Well, it's Peter's... Words, it's it's Peter's voice, but it's God's words. God is speaking through Peter here. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of all of you. So now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance and did also your rulers, but God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer. He he thus fulfilled, repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And then he starts elaborating on what prophets he's talking about. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets. For example, Moses, verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Wow, you telling me that Moses saw Jesus? Absolutely, that's what Peter's saying. And Moses said, you need to listen to him. Whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets, not just Moses, but all of them have spoken from Samuel, and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Wow, so every prophet spoke of Jesus. All the prophets have spoken from Samuel, and those who came after him proclaim these days. See, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your offspring, Shall all the families of the earth be blessed? God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So, if we had to summarize Peter's sermon, it's Why are you marveling at this healed man? Jesus did this for three years, and in return, you murdered him. Every one of you have been learning your entire life what the prophet said, even Moses, that this guy was going to come, and you decided to murder him. Stop marveling at this work and repent. That's Peter's sermon. And now we see the Holy Spirit working through Peter to heal this man. Now we start to understand. Why did God move through Peter? Why did God say to Peter, heal this guy? Pray for him and I will move through you. I will work through you and I will heal him. Grab him by the hand and raise him up and those ankles are going to pop right into socket. Why did he do that? Is it so the guy could walk again? Partly, but mostly so it would wake up the masses and people would start paying attention. Because as humans, we have this way of getting so locked in on our routine that our entire attention gets pulled off of God, the things in this universe that matter, and we get so fixed on just making sure we make it to work three minutes faster than we did yesterday. We get so locked in our routine. You, you're, you're driving to work and, and you, you literally, you arrive and you don't even, you, you can't even remember getting there. You get so locked into your routine. You can do things so quickly and so routinely without even thinking about it that you just start going to the motions. And, and it affects our religious life too. You get down and you, you start praying and, and you just start praying the same thing you've always prayed. And there's not really any thought behind it is there even really any heart behind it? Are you thinking in a way where you're articulating your word? If you were to walk up to somebody, you wouldn't just start rambling and say the same thing you say every single time. There's some thought that goes into the conversation if you really care for the person. And it affects, it, it affects when we gather as the people of God and worship. The routine, when we come in and then there's music and the music usually ends around this time and then this guy stands up here and he starts talking about some announcements and then we go through the word and then we can go and we go to break for lunch. Is there ever a moment where God breaks into that routine and wakes you up and by his mercy and his grace just shakes you awake from your routine that brings you so much comfort? This is what's happening here. Why is a man who for 40 years who could not walk suddenly can walk when he didn't even ask for it? He didn't ask to be healed. He asked for 50 cents. Why did God see fit to intervene and answer his his request in a way that he didn't even ask? Because God loves breaking our routine and shattering the way we think things should be operating. He loves it. He takes great joy in it. Because it's how he wakes us up. It's how he gets our attention off of work, hobbies, family. No, no. Fix your, wake up. Fix your eyes on me and start understanding how I impact work, hobbies, and family. See, I can get so fixed on this one thing that I neglect the thing that should be informing this. But if I fix my eyes on him, if I'm awakened to to him, if, if I have a general awe for God, if I have an awareness of his presence, if I'm listening to the Spirit speaking, if I'm filled with the Spirit and I hear him speaking, then every day is an exciting adventure and I'm never just going to work. I'm never just going to school. I'm never just having a conversation. I'm never having, I'm never forced to just do anything. Everything, if I'm filled with the Spirit and I have the proper perspective on God, everything I do is worship as unto Him. And He he has this way of transforming something just as simple as a conversation into a life-transforming moment that sets, sets things on fire in ways that they've never been on fire before. And this is what we're being invited into. Look, Christianity is not this social club where if you join, things are going to be better and your life will be marginally okay and you won't have to worry about certain things, but other things will get worse. That's not the invitation that Jesus is inviting us into. That's not what happens on the day of Pentecost. That's not what's going to happen to these disciples. What you're about to witness is persecution, trials on par with what Jesus experienced, because what God is inviting us into is radically different than anything else offered anywhere in the world. It is the one thing that is not status quo. It is the one thing where you are not buying into what the culture and society are selling. It runs completely parallel to it in every category imaginable. And what is being offered is a completely transformed new life where you are no longer in charge, driving, controlling, deciding, building. Everything you do is worship. Literally, every conversation, every thought, it says unto the Lord. And he empowers and equips and fills so that those conversations are never just idle conversations. They are now the building blocks of him structuring this kingdom. And this random prayer that you just prayed because you have compassion, he empowers and fuels that and things start transforming and changing. So what we're witnessing here is a complete disruption from the normal way of life. In order to snatch our attention off of this world and pull it back onto God. Go to verse 1 in chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them. They were greatly annoyed. Well, I bet, because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. <laughs> there were two. That was terrible. The Pharisees was a religious group that believed in the resurrection. They were the Jewish leaders. And there's another group of Jewish leaders. It's, it's, it's kind of like you got, you got conservatives and liberals. You got, there's always two parties, right? There's always two ways everyone's gonna fight about something. So you've got the Pharisees, oh, uh, there is absolutely a resurrection. And then there's the Sadducees, no, there's no resurrection. When you die, you die, that's it. There is, there is no resurrection. And so the Sadducees are getting really upset because essentially what Peter is saying in his sermon is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Oh, we don't like that at all. So verse three, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. This is, Peter's first, this is Peter's worst nightmare. Do you remember the night that Jesus was being arrested? Where was Peter? He was hiding, he was denying. This is his worst nightmare. He doesn't wanna to go to jail. He wants to avoid that at all costs. Now he's the guy who will whip out a sword and chop off somebody's ear, but please don't take me to jail. I'm not with that guy. I don't wanna be beaten. I don't want any of that. And now all of a sudden he's spending his first night in jail and things are getting real. Verse 4, many of those who had heard the word believed. The number of the men came to about 5,000. That is after he, he preached. On the next day, so the very next morning, the rulers and the elders, the scribes they came together in Jerusalem with... Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, the, the, all the guys who were responsible for senten- sentencing Jesus to death. These are the guys who conspired against Jesus. They're now standing in front of uh, Peter and John. Everybody with the high priestly family, you're looking at probably between 70 to 90 people, men, in a room about this size, 60-foot walls, and it's kind of curved like in a U-shape, and all of them, all these men in their high robes are all seated in staggered view all the way up, kind of like stadium seating, all around, surrounded, and you've got Peter and John in the middle. And can you imagine just how intimidating this is? These, these religious leaders who have given their life to God's word, standing there wanting to you to give an account for what you're saying about this Jesus. Verse seven, and when they set him in their midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name do you do this? All right, you ready for this? Verse eight, then Peter, filled with the Spirit, The verb that the the Greek there is not he was previously filled, that is, at that moment he was filled with the Spirit. He said to him, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by this. Man is standing before you well. And this Jesus is the stone that, the reject, that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is, one, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yeah. <laughs> now back up to that night, Peter's sitting in prison. What do you think is going through his mind? What do you think he's thinking about? This is the one thing I didn't want. (laughs) I don't think that's what's going through his mind. Because he's filled with the Spirit now. And he's thinking differently. And God is speaking directly to him. God's not out here delivering a message to an angel. Literally, God has given himself to his people, and the Spirit of God is inside of him. And I think that night the Spirit is reminding him of a conversation from Matthew 10, 16 through 20 when Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and and you will be dragged over before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, Do not be anxious of how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Peter, don't worry about tomorrow because God will give you the words. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit filled Peter while he was standing before them. And Peter's voice came out, but it was... God's words guys God fills his people with himself to empower and equip because we are never ever alone let's let's keep going verse 13 when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished (laughs) why because it wasn't their words it wasn't their long education in college on how to crap. No, it was the boldness. It was, it was God speaking through his people. And they recognized that these guys had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they, they had nothing in opposition to say. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, well, what are we, we going to do with these men? For that's a notable sign that's been performed through them it's evident everybody in jerusalem has seen it we can't deny it but in order that it may not spread any further among the people let us warn them not to speak anymore in this guy's name so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in jesus's name and peter and john answered them whether it is right in the sight of god to listen to you rather than to god you be the judge of that for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let him go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was no more than 40 years old. These are my two favorite observations from this trial. It was clear to everyone that these guys had had been with Jesus. And what they saw could not be disputed. I've got here in my notes, let's perform a thought experiment for a minute. Imagine that in our country, Christianity is illegal and you are now on trial. Would they be able to convict you on the evidence of it being clear that you have been with Jesus and there is evidence that cannot be disputed because your life is transformed and changed? But even as I'm speaking this now, I'm feeling the Holy Spirit prompting verse 21. It says, When they had further threatened the people, they let them go, finding no way to punishment because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. And I'm thinking about what's happening in our nation today. And I'm thinking about what's happening around the world. And I'm thinking about the perceived tightening of the neck to silence the people of God. And how the world is convinced that they have got us in a chokehold. Because when you read the news, it looks like people are leaving churches in droves. There's masses of people leaving the church. I've got news for you. The masses of people who were leaving the church, they were never here to begin with. You know how the Lord kind of lets wheat and tare grow together? And the angels and the disciples, they're asking questions. Well, well, shouldn't that be separated now? No, 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 no. I got a plan for that. Let it grow together. Because there will be moments where I will break in and disturb the normalcy of church life and those who are there playing games, for religious reasons, because they feel there's some social status to being connected, because they like the taste of power, and they've manipulated themselves and positioned themselves into some title of deacon or elder at some local church that's been around for a hundred years, and they're only there, they don't love Jesus, they're not surrendered, they like the taste of power, I'm going to break in and expose those people. Those folks who are on television who are saying in Jesus' name but are only in it for the money, I'm going to expose them. I'm going to bring to light everything that people thought that they could hide. And, and I'm reading this now and I'm watching the people praising God because God has burst in on the scene and no one expected it and nobody can control it. And I'm thinking about what is necessary for transformation today. I got news for you. It's not a new, clever church growth strategy. It's not better coffee. It's not better music. It's not a well-crafted message that's tied into some kind of social norm or some movie or book that just came out. The only thing that's going to change things in the world we live in today is the fire of God. And you can't control that. You can't schedule it. You can't manipulate it. He decides when he shows up, And our responsibility is to simply pray, God, fill us and just do it. Use us, we are vessels. We're emptying ourselves of that taste for power, that desire for wealth, that need to build our own personal kingdom. We don't want any of that garbage, we want you. We only want you. When people start praying those prayers, the Spirit of God starts filling his people and you start watching what happens in verse 21. Because of the people, Everybody starts praising God for what happened. Yes. <coughs> if God sees fit to give a third great awakening, it's not going to come because we've got clever teachers. It's not going to come because our, bu- our buildings are beautiful. It's going to come because God saw fit to just pour himself out on his people. A hungry, empty people. Who want nothing more than his presence and to be filled by him? Let's go. We're not going to finish four because verses thirty-two through thirty-seven are actually connected to five. But let's finish the story. What happens when the uh, when Peter and John come back to the rest of the Christians and the reality of persecution sets in? When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voice together to God. They're crying out because the reality that the religious leaders have got their their scope set right on them has finally set in. I spent a night in jail, guys. It's not fun, but there's probably more coming. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. Mm, That's a way to start a prayer. God who's over everything. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, when you said through the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his uh, anointed. Truly, we're, wa- we're watching this happen today. We're watching Scripture be fulfilled. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They were plotting, but we're seeing how you were behind it, Lord so now, Lord, who is in charge of everything, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now, pause right there. Because what they're doing in the face of pending persecution, they prayed. What did they pray? They prayed for revival. They prayed scripture. They prayed for more signs and wonders. And they prayed for boldness to preach the gospel in the face of persecution. And how did God respond to their prayer? Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. How did God answer the prayer of his people in persecution? He answered it by giving him, giving them more of himself. Oh, man, we miss, we're missing it. We're missing it. God, how do you answer your prayer? Give us a clever strategy to turn their hearts. No, 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 no. That's not the answer to the prayer. The answer to the prayer, God... Fill us. Show us what to do. where do we give our time? What do we, what do we fight for? Please, in the face of persecution, what do we, what do, we do? Answer our prayers, God pour like, give. what, what is he? he gives us more of himself. I, I know exactly what you need. You need more of me and less of you. How do I answer your prayers? I give you more of myself. I pour more spirit inside of you. Why? Because you need that spirit speaking to you. Give here pray there, go there, speak this, pray here, read this, submit to this. And this is where I want to finish today. We've talked, and I've mentioned numerous times, kind of the idea that we're hovering around today is that God is actively filling His people regularly. This is like the fifth time they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. What is God doing? He's filling His people to equip them and empower them. So if we see this precedent in Scripture, if we see the Spirit of God filling His people, do we take this seriously? Are we taking His presence and the Holy Spirit seriously? Are we following His lead allowing Him to speak through us and work through us? Are we obeying what He's saying? Are we praying to be filled regularly so we're acting, allowing Him to act through us rather than just acting on our own accord and making decisions on our own? Or are we, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 30-31, grieving the Holy Spirit with our corrupt talk and our bitterness and our slander and our anger and our unforgiveness? This is what we have to wrestle with today. That what our God is offering to us is more of himself, filling his people even more to accomplish, to withstand, uh, to, to, to overcome anxiety and to, to overcome fear, to watch the, the, the spirit of God literally pour himself out through signs, wonders, and miracles, to live a life where I'm literally just following the Holy. What are you doing today? Whatever the spirit tells me to do. I'm going to work. I've got a plan, I've structured, I've got my notes for my sermon, but, but really I'm only prepared up to the point where he can start speaking through me so that these are the, word, the words that I'm saying are not actually my words anyway, it's, it's his words. So I'm, I'm living my life, but he's living through me and he's speaking through me, that's the offer. Or I can grieve the Spirit because what I like more than anything is just being angry at people and not forgiving people and walking in slander and bitterness and grieving the Holy Spirit so that he's not, he's not I'm, I'm leaking the Holy Spirit out. I'm, I'm, I've grieved Him so greatly that at this point you're like, well, I don't know about that. Can you can can you leave the Holy Spirit? Can can he can he leave? Can 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 his presence? Well, I'll direct you to the, the beginning of Revelation, where God warns the churches that if they don't turn, He's going to take the presence from them, and how you can't go to the church of Ephesus today. I want you to think about many of the churches who are still standing across the country who started with God as the center of why they were doing what they were doing. But somewhere along the line, they had a staff they had to pay, they had a building they had to pay the budget on, all of a sudden, the next thing that God was doing was just, it just always seemed to be tied to some new project, or some new effort, and there was all, and the more time you give to that, suddenly it's like there's no, no one's praying, no one's broken, no one's weeping over their sin, no one's weeping over, in joy, because God's presence is moving in the place, and then you look around, you're like, well, oh, I see what's happening. The Spirit of God is not in this place. God has departed. I'm telling you, you don't want that. You don't want that in your church. You don't want that in your life. So my prayer as we read Acts 3-4 through 4 today is that we leave this place wrestling with the reality that am I filled with the Spirit and living a life where He's leading and guiding me or am I grieving the Holy Spirit because I like the taste of being right, wrestling with power, holding on to slander and bitterness. And I don't really care that I'm led by the Spirit because I like leading things my way. Let's pray.